0: This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet Podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day to day solutions for raising kind, successful, well adjusted human beings and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 34 of the Are They 18 Yet? podcast. In this episode, I am going to share the third of three shifts that we can make when doing intervention for people with ADHD and also autism, and really just as we are learning ways that we can be supportive of neurodivergence. As I've shared before, the reason that I am so passionate about this topic is because I have had a lot of personal experiences with it as a practitioner, so someone who has been in charge of supporting kids and as a parent, and then also as a person who is a neurodivergent myself and experiencing some of these interventions on a personal level There are a lot of things that have been commonly accepted as best practice, but as you may know, if you've listened to the last two episodes, episodes 32 and episode 33, you know that a lot of those practices are things that a lot of people are coming back as adults saying, you know what, This thing that was done when I was a child was actually quite traumatizing, and obviously if you are a person who is supporting someone in your life, you want to be helpful and, and not do things that are going to be upsetting to them. Before we get started, I wanted to mention my time tracking journal, which is a tangible resource that you can use to help make some of these shifts that I have shared in this episode series. Again, the Time Tracking Journal is a strategy and a tool that outlines some steps that you can take if you are supporting someone who has a hard time with self-regulation during some of those day-to-day tasks that require multiple steps that might be a little bit challenging if they are having a hard time motivating and attending to tasks and also sensing how long things are going to take and planning ahead so that they get all of the things that they need to do done, whether it be homework assignments, whether it be things around the house, whether it be organizing their things. So if you want to get access to the time tracking journal, just go to com backslash time journal. Again, that's com backslash time journal. For now, let's discuss the third of those three shifts. All right, so let's start by reviewing the first and the second shift. The first shift is that we want to go from strategies that focus on control and compliance. So some of those strict behavioral approaches that are really focused on rewards and punishments that aren't necessarily always functional. We want to go from those types of strategies that are focused on compliance to focusing on approaching the situation from a place of curiosity so that we can really figure out before we try to control those behaviors that we see as undesirable we want to really understand why they're happening in the first place because if we try to control these behaviors or curb certain things that we think are inappropriate or get people to act in a certain way that we think that they should be acting without understanding why they aren't doing whatever we think they should be doing, then we're not necessarily considering the root cause of these differences and why they might be happening in the first place. And so that's the key to intervening in a way that is helpful instead of traumatizing. The second shift is that we want to switch from working on behaviors that are appropriate to instead focusing on behaviors that are effective and functional. So one person's way of doing things might work for them, but... We want to get away from these arbitrary rules about how things need to be done based on standards of society and social rules, and instead understand that the way that a neurodivergent might do things, the way that they might choose to work or interact might be different than a neurotypical person. So instead of thinking about what's the appropriate way to do this based on neurotypical standards, we want to consider What is important to this person and how can we help them do it in a way that is functional and effective for them? And understand that the way that they do that might be something that is different from what we think is, quote, appropriate based on those neurotypical standards. So those are the first two shifts. So now let's move on to the third shift. And that is that we want to move from approaches that really are gaslighting to instead teaching self-reflection. So let me give you some specific examples to show you what I mean, because there are many cases where we might be wanting to support someone and we don't realize the way that it's coming across to them or we don't realize the way that they are experiencing that situation And although we may be well-meaning, we might be causing a lot of unnecessary suffering and trauma without realizing it. And I will say that I have been the person who has been on the administering and the receiving end of this. And I will give some specific examples in just a minute here. So before I do that, I think a lot of people listening probably know what I mean when I say gaslighting, but just in case you don't, gaslighting is a term that originally came from a play back in the 1930s, and it was called Gaslight. And in this play, basically what happened was a husband slowly convinced his wife that she was going crazy through manipulation. So for example, he would take things from her and hide them and convince her that she's the one that lost them. And he would do all sorts of things. And, and one of the main things that he would do is that he would dim the gas lights and they would go on and off No reason, and she would be asking about it, and he would say, No, 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 you're imagining things that's not really happening, you are losing your mind. And through the course of the plot, he continued to do these things that made her doubt her grip on reality, and over time, it caused psychological trauma. So I won't give away the end of the play and the movie it was also made into a movie, but but essentially that is what I mean when I say gaslighting. It is psychological manipulation that that causes people to question their grip on reality. Now the majority of people listening right now are here because they have someone who they want to support, that they care about and who would never do anything to intentionally cause harm to them. And so that analogy might seem a little bit dramatic, but the reason that I bring this up is because of a number of reasons. Number one, that people who are on the autism spectrum or who have ADHD or other diagnoses with a neurological origin are definitely more likely to be put in situations repeatedly where they experience gaslighting without realizing it. And the reason that that is the case is that some of the characteristics, for example, of autism, is that they might not always read some of those neurotypical social cues. And over time, they might have an awareness that they aren't always able to read those social cues. And they also, because of that, might be put in these different social skills groups where people might be pointing out the fact that they aren't always reading social cues in the way that others do. And people are also pointing out behaviors that they're doing that others find inappropriate and telling them that the way that they're doing things is somehow wrong, inappropriate, even though it might be something that feels totally appropriate and logical to them. With people with ADHD, this happens as well because there are certain times when people might tell them, oh, you're just being lazy, you are choosing to not pay attention, When in reality, they're really, really trying the best that they can and they don't know how to behave any differently and no one is teaching them a strategy to help them become successful. So they start to think to themselves, well, maybe I really am lazy and defiant and a bad kid and an unmotivated person, or maybe I really am annoying and inappropriate because they're being told those things over and over again, because their experience, the way that they are experiencing the world is constantly invalidated, they do often fall prey to situations like that without realizing it. And in some situations, there might be people who are deliberately targeting them and teasing them and messing with them because they know that that person isn't necessarily able to read cues. And then there might be other situations where people might have good intentions, but because that person has endured abuse from other people, they are highly sensitive. So sometimes when people try to shell out the tough love, they have a very emotional response just because they've been traumatized by those things. And oftentimes, even when someone is well meaning, if they use some type of approach that is very authoritarian and based on control, it can be very traumatizing for the person on the receiving end. Even if the person legitimately wants to help they can unknowingly cause trauma and start to walk that fine line between tough love and gaslighting. So let me just share a couple things that are commonly said to neurodivergence that really are in that, like I said, that gray area between tough love and gaslighting. And as I share these things, I just wanted to say again that there is a ton of evidence that shows that most human beings are innately kind, compassionate people who want to do a good job at whatever it is they're doing and also make other people happy. So this includes that child who's disrupting the class, the child who is rolling on the floor having a meltdown, the student with 50 missing assignments, the student that never follows directions, the child that overshares and interrupts, the person who challenges everything you say and always demands to know why. And it also includes the child who turns in schoolwork that's illegible and has a ton of mistakes to answers they likely know. And I could go on and on and on. So, some of the things that we often say to people. Who are showing some of those behaviors might be things like, you're overcomplicating this, stop asking so many questions. Or a very common one, which is, but everybody else can do it. So why do you need something else? Why are you asking for something that's more than what other people are getting? Or even something like, you're overreacting, it's all in your head, or you're just being stubborn or lazy or one that has commonly been said to me, which is, you're the only one who is struggling with this. So all of those things that I just shared have been said to me at least once and oftentimes many times. And a lot of the people that said them to me had the best of intentions, but in many cases, they did feel like gaslighting. And it's really helpful to remember that those things that I shared are often things that get said to adults. And many times those adults have had a lot of different experiences in their childhood that have reinforced the idea that they are somehow lazy, broken, defiant, difficult. And so there's a lot of trauma built up from the past just from other experiences that they've had due to people misunderstanding their behaviors and misunderstanding their intentions or how to support them. Again, literally a lot of people will say those types of things to people who are a little bit older, maybe high school to young adults, well into adulthood. And when we're working with younger children, a lot of times we're not saying those things to them literally, but we're saying them In other ways, such as the way that we treat them, the way that we respond when they act in ways that we think are, quote, bad behaviors. So each time we yell or punish them in some way or show frustration for those undesirable behaviors, or when they fail to do things the way that we expect them to do and we invalidate in some way, what they're experiencing, were really saying more than words could ever express in that moment. So I'm going to dive into one example that's unique to my experience so that I can give you a little bit of context. I've been labeled by others as a worrier and an overthinker. I was also a late talker. I had a lot of sensory issues, and I did engage in quite a few stimming behaviors, as I have mentioned before in previous episodes. And I get easily overwhelmed when I have to read a lot of social cues at once in the moment. So I have pretty good executive functioning skills when I'm working alone, but as soon as you start getting other people involved especially when I have to make snap decisions on the spot during real-time interactions, that's when my ability to process sometimes starts to diminish depending on the context and how familiar it is and how well I understand the expectations of the people I'm interacting with. And I have learned to cope by leaning on my analytical skills And my inquisitive nature to ask questions and plan ahead and anticipate things. And especially to be able to prepare when I know I'm going to be in one of those situations that's going to be mentally taxing for me. And sometimes I'm able to avoid those situations altogether, which is always nice, but not always possible. So throughout the course of that time, I've gotten really good at acting like I'm fine, acting like I'm perfectly calm and chill when really I'm a ball of anxiety inside and I'm in fight or flight mode. There are many times when I look like I'm totally relaxed, but really I have sweaty palms and sweaty armpits and all of the things. There are a lot of times that things that seem obvious or simple to others they don't feel simple to me because I do take a little bit of extra time to pick up on some of those cues. But luckily I've learned to advocate for myself by teaching myself to read those things on an analytical level and also to ask questions and speak up when I don't understand things, especially when I know that there is going to be something that requires a lot of steps or processes. I know that I'll be able to get it I know that when I have time to process and analyze what's going on, I can do very well. But when I have a lot of pressure, especially when there's a lot of cues going on at once, I know that that can be a little bit harder for me. So again, I've learned to advocate for myself by setting up situations in a way where I know I'm going to be more successful and also by speaking up when I don't understand things. But that Self-advocacy is not always well-received by others. A lot of times people will say, you know, you're overthinking because other people are doing just fine and aren't confused. However, I always find that comment irrelevant because I'm not other people. And as I have said before, it's kind of an apples to oranges comparison if you're going to compare me to someone who is wired completely differently than I am. Telling a neurodivergent that they're overthinking, not trying, or just being stubborn when they're trying to advocate for themselves is like telling a person in a wheelchair that they're being lazy because they can't run up a flight of stairs. Many times saying, it's just in your head, you're fine, you're making it up, is kind of irrelevant because, of course, if it's a neurological variation, it is literally in our heads which is exactly what makes it very real. And I feel very compelled to speak up about this because I have been blessed with the language skills that allow me to do so and that have allowed me to ask for things that I need. And I consider that a huge privilege. I also have the privilege to be in a situation where I can often choose to avoid situations where I know my needs won't be met or understood, but there are a lot of people who don't have those skills and those privileges. Some, for example, may not have the verbal skills to express their needs or the executive functioning skills to be able to plan ahead independently like I am able to do. And a lot of times people might express their needs differently aside from verbal behaviors. So that is why it's so important to, as I've said before with the first shift, come at this from a position of curiosity, not assumption, not trying to control people, not trying to make them more appropriate, but trying to understand where they're coming from, why they're acting the way that they are and what you can do to help them be successful. That is the key question that you always want to be asking. And when we are looking at the things that they're asking from us and somehow invalidating what they're going through, all that's going to do is, number one, traumatize that person even further because chances are, They've already experienced a lot of gaslighting in their lives. And even if you don't mean to be manipulative, it might be interpreted that way just because of their past experiences. They might be extremely sensitive to those types of comments and experience it in a way that you did not intend. And on the other side, it's really hard to build rapport with somebody if they don't trust you. And if they don't feel that you fully understand where they are and what they're experiencing, they're not going to trust you to intervene. They're not going to be open to the support that you offer. And the other thing is that there might be times when they do need a little bit of tough love. A lot of people need that at some point. They need some structure. They need someone to be firm with them. But you have to earn the right to do that, which, again, you won't be able to do if they don't trust you. Because here's the other side of the coin. There are many times where I've been in situations where I've had questions about things and people have been really dismissive, and that has been very unhelpful. But On the other hand, there are some times when I really am overthinking. But if I do not trust that person because they've been dismissive in the past, I can't tell if they're being dismissive or if I really am overthinking. If you develop that trust, then that person will be more likely to believe you when you tell them that they're misinterpreting a situation. But if you don't have that trust, then it's going to be hard for them to really believe what you're saying because they've learned from past experiences that people can't be trusted. And many times that is an accurate interpretation because there may have been people in their lives that were not trustworthy and were really trying to manipulate them. But the thing is, is that neurodivergents still need to be responsible and accountable for their actions so that they can live productive, healthy lives. Sometimes we need help, but that help can't make us doubt our own sense of reality and make us feel like we're just choosing to be stubborn, difficult, or defiant when there really is a neurological reason behind the behavior. When your feelings and experiences are constantly invalidated, it's easy to stop trusting yourself and your ability to make decisions, all which are things that are so important to leading a productive, independent life. If all we're told is, you need to do it this way because my way is right and your way is wrong then we lack the opportunity to truly understand how to apply that task to any sort of functional situation. If we don't know why we're doing something, how are we going to know when to apply that skill in another situation? The truth is we need a way to develop our own internal self-talk and self-reflection so that we can develop Intrinsic motivation and resilience, as well as build critical thinking skills and self confidence. And again, gaslighting does not help us do that because all it does is make us doubt our own perception of reality. We have to learn ways that we can pick up on cues and evaluate our own behavior so that we know when to change it. And understanding and having somebody who gives us honest feedback is so important, but that has to be a person who truly understands what we're experiencing. Learning the skills of self-reflection is not possible if we're constantly told that the way we're experiencing the world is somehow not real or invalid. That is why this third shift is so important. So shifting from Telling someone that they're wrong, telling someone that they need to act a certain way or that the way that they're interpreting things is incorrect without giving them the tools to self reflect and without understanding why they might be interpreting things in a certain way. And of course, without truly understanding why they're thinking something is the way that it is. And possibly, Being open to the assumption that they might be right and you might be misinterpreting things. So that's where we make that shift from gaslighting to teaching the skills of self reflection. (laughs) In the coming months, I'm going to be working on some information and resources centered around neurodiversity, but I wanted to share one resource with you right now as we wrap up this three-part series. So when we think about neurodiversity, two common populations that come up are ADHD and autistic individuals, although those aren't the only two, but those are two common ones. And one common thing that comes up with both populations is that executive functioning can be impacted, which can result in a number of behaviors that neurotypicals might describe as defiant or inappropriate. And the common response is often punishing kids for not doing what they're supposed to be doing, like schoolwork or following directions. But in reality, the issue may be tied to poor executive functioning and internal dialogue. And of course, if someone doesn't have a skill, we don't want to punish them for not having it. We want to teach them the skill. The good news is that kids who are showing those types of behaviors that might be indicative of weak executive functioning can actually learn to build those skills in a way that's productive and effective when they are taught the right strategies. And the best part is that there's a way to do it in a way that builds their self-image in the process. And I share how to do that in the Time Tracking Journal. The Time Tracking Journal outlines a strategy that helps kids get out of their comfort zone in a healthy and affirming way so that they can increase tolerance for difficult or uncomfortable tasks, improve time management skills on common daily activities, understand how done looks so that they can understand expectations, get tasks done effectively and efficiently so that they can experience a feeling of success, and just overall be productive and successful and feel more confident in all the things that they have to do on a daily basis. You can check out the Time Tracking Journal by going to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, in that time journal, I share a strategy that you can use to support someone and to make these three shifts that I have been talking about in episodes 32, 33, and this episode, episode 34. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this series. Again, remember that it helps us out so much if you leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, if you know someone who would benefit from this information, please share it with them. Thank you so much again for listening and I will see you in episode 35.